friends, welcome back to the Making Room on the Pew podcast, a podcast for the misfits and outcasts. You are listening to episode 28. to another episode of the Making Room on the Pew podcast. My name is Bailey Joe Welch Pomerantz, your host here on the show, and I am so excited for our conversation that we have for you today. Um, I got to sit down with Megan Westra um, a couple of weeks ago and record this amazing conversation. We talk about what it means to be a chaplain, which is what Megan is right now. Um, we talk about Megan's new book, Born Again and Again, that just came out last year. We talk about faith shifts. And let me just say that Megan speaks like she writes, which means I kept getting really lost in how gorgeous the words coming out of her mouth were. But if you haven't connected with Megan yet, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her. Trust me, you're going to want to find her on social media the second you end this conversation. Megan is a dynamic and passionate public speaker. She's a podcaster and, like I said, author of her new book, Born Again and Again. With over a decade of pastoral experience, she is deeply committed to the work of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and particularly in the Sherman Park neighborhood of Milwaukee, where she has lived and worked for 10 years with her husband, Ben, and her daughter, Cadence. So without further ado, here is my wonderful conversation with Megan Westra. All right, Megan, welcome to the Making Room on the Pew podcast. I'm so glad to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Okay, so before we get into talking about anything, um, for the people who maybe haven't connected with you yet, haven't read your book, um, have no idea who Megan Westra is. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a hospice chaplain and a avid walker in the last year. I'm all about the daily walks. Very, very big into that. Um, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I'm a transplant from the South. Um, So I am both equally fierce about the Midwest and about the South. Um, So don't come for my cornbread or my cheese curds. Um, I am married. I have a nine-year-old. I am chronically serious. Enneagram one, ENFJ, Hufflepuff, like we can go through all the like shorthand. Um, but that's, that's kind of in a nutshell who I am. And then I, I write books or I write, I wrote a book. I'm hoping to write another book at some point. And I say things on the internet and people read them. <laughs> and that's a weird thing that happens. And I podcast. And if you, the more time you give me, I'll just keep thinking of like random things about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, You know what? I have such a soft spot for Enneagram ones. Um, So my sister is a one and my wife is a one. And I listened to Sleeping at Last has like all of those Enneagram, right? Like all of those songs. The, everybody kept saying like, oh, the only one you'll cry on is your number. Um, I'm a five. I did not cry on the five. The only one I cried on was the one because I was just like, oh, like it broke my heart of like the 
the depth of the inner critic and like I can see it in my wife and my sister all the time every everything they do and it it just I have such a soft spot for one so I get really excited we ones need soft spots because we don't have any in our own internal landscape (laughs) oh I know I know okay so you are a hospice chaplain was that in the plan is that what you wanted to do always? Uh, no, but also I don't think I had anything I wanted to do always. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of like a weird, I don't know. Like, I, I guess there are some people who like know what they want to be when they grow up when they're kids. Mm-hmm. I did not. Other than I thought the librarian was super cool. And to this day, if somebody was just like, hey, Megan, would you like to be a librarian? I'd be like, oh my gosh, yes, please. <laughs> like, I would love to be yeah. a librarian. Um. I, you know, I always had lots of things I was interested in as a child or like even coming up through like high school and college. My undergraduate degree is in sports medicine because I thought I might want to be like a physical therapist or a doctor. I do not. Um, I am not that good at chemistry or at any of the sciences, uh, but I tried. I tried real hard. Uh, a for effort, I guess. Um, and I hated undergrad, and so I just wanted to get out, and so I finished with a degree in sports medicine, uh, went back six years later and did my Master's of Divinity, um, and really went into seminary. At that point, when I started seminary, I was serving as a pastor at a church, uh, primarily in worship and children's ministry, but over the course of my experience in seminary, I started doing more like teaching and small group leading and different things like that. And so I really was fortunate enough to be in a church context where they let me kind of grow with my own understanding of my giftings, uh, which mm-hmm. is a gift that's not lost on me. Um, but I went into seminary out of like a pure act of faithfulness. Like I very much felt like that was what the spirit was calling me to do. Um, and for being somebody that grew up Southern Baptist, I'm like all about like the Holy Spirit leads us to do things. I'm like very, very into that. Um, So I felt very much like I was called to go to seminary. I could not have articulated why other than like, I'm working as a pastor and I probably should know what I'm doing. Like probably should have some more formal training other than just I have a sports medicine degree and I'm a huge Bible nerd. And I have like a Timothy award from Moana growing up, like (laughs) probably need more, some more credentials. Um, So I went to seminary and just held it really loosely, which was a beautiful way to go through seminary to not have like this thing that I knew for sure I wanted to do at the end of it. Um, And so I held it all really loosely and thought that I might want to go on and like keep going to school and just get my PhD because I'm a huge nerd and just like I, I that would be the other thing like if I could just go to school perpetually like if I could just forever be learning things that would be so great I love that yes um and as a five you probably like resonate with that a little bit <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> um but then uh the pandemic started in my last year of seminary and I just kind of really started to like sit with like, what's next? Like, where are you leading me? Um, And remembered uh, several years ago when both of my grandparents passed away and they were on hospice and how meaningful those services were and decided to give it a shot. Um, But in this particular season, it just felt like a, a space 
that the Lord was inviting me to press into. Um, and so I, I ended up doing hospice chaplaincy and that's been such a beautiful and hard and like exactly the right fit for this exact season of my life. And I'm not going to like die on the hill of a, I'm a forever chaplain, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay open to it and open to where the Lord might lead. And I, yeah, I never imagined myself here. So I'm not going to pretend to imagine myself anywhere in the future. Just how do I practice showing up to myself and to the world around me with faithfulness? Yeah. Well, and being a chaplain is a very specific skill set. I feel, you know, like, so my wife is a pastor, like Mm -hmm. in a church and she always talks about how she would, she couldn't be a chaplain. She had to do a semester or something of it. And she was like, it was terrible. I like, it's just not her thing. She just, it wasn't working for her. Um, and I know how amazing chaplains are through college. I was a nurse's assistant. And so I started as a nursing assistant in, um, an inpatient psych hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I graduated at, not graduated, I moved over to um, to a cardiac health mm-hmm. unit. And so there was like a lot of codes and a lot of death yeah. there. Um, and because I had come from psych, anything that was quote hard with mm-hmm. patients, families or anything, everybody would send me because they're like, mm. you know how to do it, go. Mm-hmm. And I became such good friends with the chaplain. I mean, she was amazing. And it was such support for me because I was supposed to support the nurses mm-hmm. and we needed somebody else to come in. And she so often was that. Yeah. 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 So that I, I love, I mean, I, I love when I meet chaplains. Um, I feel like you just have such, such good stories. I mean, hard stories for sure. Yeah. But good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite thing about being a chaplain? I love that I get to show up to work and meet Jesus every day. Yeah. Um, I'm very, very serious about the whole idea that God resides wherever we think God could not be and wherever we are least expecting Mm -hmm. God to be and wherever there is someone like sick or in prison or like that whole Matthew 25 list, right? Of Like I'm hungry or thirsty or whatever. It's like wherever um, those things are present and something that people are going through experiencing in their lives, that's where Jesus is. And so I feel very honored to show up and to bear witness to where Christ is in the world. Um, and to just, to just bear witness to that and to walk alongside people and their families to hold their stories. Um, and, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to bear witness to. Um, I feel like I'm getting really repetitive because I'm like, I just get to bear witness, but that is like such a, like, 
in a in a world that it feels so like nebulous sometimes and certainly as somebody Mm -hmm. who's written a book and like says things on the internet that's so removed like that's so when I say that is somebody who like enjoys that but it's also so it's it's avatars and it's writing words on a page and then sending them off to a publisher and knowing that like at some point they will be in somebody's hands hopefully or in their earbuds if they're listening to an audiobook or whatever um and there's a realness about chaplaincy where it's just like like literally like holding people's hands and like being face to face with them or for face to mask and um mm-hmm. there's a a really human element to all of that that I'm really grateful for um it's very grounding and keeps me connected to like okay no but where is Jesus where is Jesus yeah how do I always be looking for where Jesus is? And I think it's it's helping me see Christ in more aspects of my life too. But that's the like, I guess the nutshell, the very large nutshell answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. I wonder how different each of our lives would be if that's what we were doing was always looking for Jesus, no matter what our job um, no matter what we're doing, if we were always looking for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about your book, but before that, when did you start writing? Has this been like a lifelong, always writing all the time? Um, or was it just recently where you decided, okay, fine, I'll write a book. So I, my first memory of writing was I was like in kindergarten and do you know Little Critter like the little like children's book and he looks kind of like a yeah. hedgehog okay yeah so my yeah. mom had gotten this like Little Critter creative writing booklet thing for me to work on uh, when I was like five years old and I was obsessed with it I thought it was the coolest thing also I was like five so I couldn't write very many words yeah and so I remember like constantly like begging my mom like let's do the creative writing book together. Like, come help me write a story. And I think like looking at it now as an adult, I'm like, oh, she that probably totally backfired on her. Like she thought it was going to be this like great, like work on this independently thing. And it was not. <laughs> um, yeah. But I remember just being obsessed with the idea that like you could write stories and you could just follow mm-hmm. a prompt and just go. And so writing has always kind of been like a hum in the background for me. As I got older, like I would, you know, I would journal or I would like give all my friends fake names and like write a fictional story about us and like work out my angst. Um, And I, yeah, so I always, it was always kind of there. Uh, I graduated from college in the early 2000s and that's just like what good Christian kids did was they like started blogs after they graduated so that all their friends could keep up with them. And so I kind of got in uh, blogging at that point. Um, and wrote my way through early adulthood, which was painful looking back at, uh, but also like as my faith started to shift from growing up fundamentalist and Southern Baptist to neither of those things, I just wrote my questions and I didn't really think about that being like a thing. I just didn't know how else to process it. And so uh, started writing more about how my faith was shifting, things I was grappling with, 
and yeah and then eventually somebody asked me to write a book <laughs> yeah so um your first book born again and again mm -hmm. um what's about tell us about it it is technically it's about like consumer culture and salvation and how they kind of get all like wrapped up in the in evangelical churches and arguably a decent number of mainline churches too um and so that's kind of the like official like back back of the book thing um I like to think of it as the like if you were going rock climbing it's like the like the handholds and the footholds uh of my last 10 12 years of faith and like hey, if these are questions you're starting to ask, here's some of my thoughts and some ideas for like where you should keep go, like go dig over there, right? Like yeah. go keep going over there. Um, and so I, I write to feel less alone. Um, and that's a, a big thing for me when people tell you to like, think about your audience or whatever. Like I, I write for people who grew up like me and that that story doesn't fit for them anymore and in hopes that we all feel a little less alone at the end of the day. And so it's like the, uh, it's a time capsule of sorts, but it is about, it, it's about salvation and consumerism and how we need to stop thinking of Jesus or salvation as something that we like tuck into our hearts as like a little trinket that makes us feel better and more of like a practice um, that we submit to and are people to whom we belong. Yeah, that's beautiful. What was your catalyst for starting to rethink faith and ask questions? Was there one or was it just the natural progression of life? There were many, <laughs> there were so many. <laughs> um, I think the first one that I remember was like, I was in high school my senior year and I was volunteering with like a after school program that my church helped to run. And I remember sitting there talking with like a third grade girl and she had all of these worries in life that I couldn't even fathom. She had a parent who was incarcerated. She was housing insecure. She was food insecure, like all of these things. And she just is, you know, opening up about them. And I realized as I listened to her that the only answer I had for her was like, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and savior? And I was like, that sucks. <laughs> um, and so I did not say to, that to her in that moment, but I also realized that I didn't have anything else to offer other than a personal relationship with Jesus who lived in her heart and had nothing to say about any of these concerns she was sharing with me. And so that was kind of one of the moments. Um, I think that another big one for me was uh, I have a daughter, she's nine. And when she was born, I was all of a sudden like, oh no, <laughs> I have yeah. to teach another like young woman what it means to be a woman. <laughs> oh no <laughs> um because at that point i was still very much like i knew that like purity culture and patriarchy wasn't the story 
that I wanted, but I also had just kind of like hit a pause button of like, oh, that's, that's not it. Not sure what it is. I'll figure it out eventually. And then it was like, oh no, I need to figure this out real, real fast. Um, yeah. And it, it was just like a, you know, it was, it was a cool moment in time because like my daughter was born that was the same year that Rachel Held Evans wrote A Year of Biblical Womanhood. There were just like all these like things that like lined up to be just like, oh, okay. No, there's a whole like path that you can go down here. And so that was another big catalyzing moment. Um, and then like the, the year before that, we had moved into a predominantly black neighborhood. And so that uh, raised lots of questions about like race and what it means to be white and what was the story that I was handed growing up about race and things like that? So it was, it was many, many, many little cataclysmic events over the course of like a decade or so. Yeah. I think that's kind of the story for everybody, right? It's like, mm -hmm. uh, there's a hundred events yeah. that made me start to rethink what I had been learned or what I had been taught. Um, so let's say there is someone listening who maybe start is starting to have questions, but about their faith or about what they were taught or God or the Bible or whatever. And they're not sure that their faith can take it. They're not sure that, that they're going to make it asking these questions, what would you tell them? I would tell them that there's life on the other side of the breaking. Yeah. And that if anything breaks, then it wasn't meant to hold you in the first place. And I recognize that there's all kinds of paths that people take when they start asking questions. And some people, it leads them out of some sort of like formalized belief system. And that's, that's fine. That's beautiful. And mine has kept me within the camp of Christianity broadly um, for better or for worse, no matter how many times I'm like, oh gosh, like, do I, do I really want to keep like claiming this, this yeah. name, this title, this is embarrassing. Um, but I'm here. I'm still here. I can't shake it. Um, and I think that it's true. And so I think, but I, I had that same feeling. I had that same feeling of just being so afraid to ask questions, of being so afraid to like follow through on things. I've been warned my whole life about this slippery slope uh, that was apparently very, yeah. very dangerous. And I finally just got to the place where I was just like, well, if, if I can break something because I questioned it, then that's not God. Um, or at least it's not a God that I want to worship or serve or, or come under the Lordship of or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like, all right, some things are going to have to break. And that doesn't mean that that's bad necessarily. Like there's, there's good rupturing in the world and there's bad rupturing, right? Like you can like have something break open like a bomb or you can have something break open like a bulb in the springtime and new life yeah. goes out of it. And so I think to not be afraid of that breaking open 
because it might be, there might be life that comes out of it. Yeah. You, you speak like a writer. Like I keep getting lost <laughs> in, in your words. Cause I'm like, oh, you're painting such a pretty picture for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a chaplain, especially as a hospice chaplain, do you get a lot of questions, a lot of hard questions about God and life? Sometimes. I mean, usually by the time people come onto service with a hospice, you, you qualify for hospice when you are terminal within six months without any sort of invasive treatment or aggressive treatment. And so usually by the time people come on hospice, they're starting to come to grips with their loved one's decline or their own decline. Sometimes not, but most people, they're, they're starting to wrap their heads around it a little bit. Occasionally, there's really hard questions, but a lot of the time, grief doesn't necessarily present as, as a direct question. It's more like a diffuse, like a hazy question, right? It's less of like a spotlight, like, tell me the answer to this right now. Like, I want to know why this happens and more <laughs> of just like a, you know, that, that haze of just like, there's something in the air, there's something kind of humming around. And so I think the thing that I try to point families to um, or patients to is that there is no space beyond God's reach, um, that wherever they are is holy ground, that all of the emotions or feelings or anger or questions or what, that it's all allowed, that there's nothing, that we aren't meant to diminish our human experience in order to be acceptable to the divine um, the divine calls our human experience good and so we come with all of that and so I just try to like speak those things into the like diffused angst or grief of, of any situation because oftentimes the the questions aren't aren't direct they're they're just kind of floating yeah yeah all right as we come to the end of our time. I want to talk about something, a quote that's on your website oh. where you say, yeah, where you say theology should dance with us, not put us to sleep. Yeah. Can, can we talk about that? I love that. Thank you. So, yeah. So what, what do you mean? Because I, I do think that a lot of people either think theology is over their head or boring. I think those are kind of the two um, viewpoints that a lot of people have if they aren't seminarians or have some sort of training. Right. Um, but you're saying it dances with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Um... I really love the image that I'm blanking on her name, but she's a womanist theologian. Her book is Dancing with God. It's uh, mm -hmm. a view of the Trinity through a womanist lens. And I loved that idea of like dancing with God, which it, it, when you're talking about the Trinity, dancing is not an uncommon metaphor. People will talk about like you know, God dancing within God's self. But the idea of 
the like freedom and silliness and delight and intimacy of dancing, uh, depending on who you're dancing with and what the context is and things like that, right? But it's just like, oh yeah, there's not one one way to dance. Uh, you know, you might call someone a bad dancer. I would then probably just tell you that like, you need to just take a breath and like get on with your life. Like <laughs> just let people be happy and enjoy it, right? Like. Um, yeah, but it requires a level of both awareness and abandon to dance. You have to be aware of the move, the music and the rhythm and the, your own space where everybody else is spatially. Uh, but it also requires a sense of abandon, right? Like that's why it's so nerve wracking to be the first person on the dance floor. Cause we don't want everybody looking at us. Uh, there's a, a sense of vulnerability in that. And I think that at its best, theology invites us to, to do the same thing, to be aware of the world around us, the space that we inhabit in it, the space that formed us, the space that we're moving toward, uh, the implications thereof, and also invites us to a sense of abandon of saying, there is more to this than making sure that I have it right or that I hit every step or that I know the latest thing that they're doing on TikTok or whatever, like wherever <laughs> we learn new dances right now, I don't know. Um, and just, just enjoy it and, and lose yourself in that moment and in the music and in the celebration or intimacy thereof. Um, and I think that theology invites us to that. If you scroll down further on my website, there's also a quote from Declan Marmion um which is something about the end of it anyway is about like theology should should delight us and move us right so i think that there's also this like active yeah. piece of theology that often gets lost in particularly like seminary dialogues and especially if it's like a bunch of white seminarians um sitting mm -hmm. around where we can have real real cool ideas like really really beautiful ideas but they don't do anything and we don't get to the like active part of that. And I think that if our theology just sounds good um, or it reads well on paper, if there's these really cool ideas, but there's no way to actually put them into practice, then it's not very good theology. And so I think that the, the implied movement of dancing is, is important to me too, that it's like, no, this should, this should be moving us in some ways. Um, or at least like putting us in those like pre-contemplative steps of like what movement would look like in those ways. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, if someone is thinking they would like to learn more about theology where they're finally thinking, okay, I'm not going to be content with thinking it's over my head and they really want to learn, where do they start? If you have resources, you can say them. Uh, I don't wanna put you on the spot. If you don't have them, it's totally fine. Um, where should people start or maybe what's the mindset to bring to learning about theology? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think my general recommendation to people is to press into where they're already curious. Uh, 
theology is a mm-hmm. real big pool. Uh, like there's a lot of places yeah. to jump in. And so, you know, for people that are just like, I'm going to learn more about theology. Okay, cool. Like, what's your biggest question? Like, I would probably like respond to their like, you know, assertion with like a question of my own, um, which would be like very like Christ-like of me to be like, let me just yeah. ask you a question. <laughs> um, but I think we tend to do our best work when we're just like following our own curiosities and what's already kind of yeah. setting our soul on fire a little bit. Um, so for people that are just like, well, the, the, the cross doesn't make any sense to me. This whole, like God had to kill his son to like, that doesn't make any sense. Great. Cool. Like, please go dig into some soteriology then. And like, I, I definitely yeah. have like resources that I would recommend. The first season of my podcast was on soteriology. And so people can listen to that. And then I drop all kinds of like recommended resources through that. Uh, but if it's more like a, if it is a question about like gender or sexuality or race or like so many things, I think those are really common ones that come up for people because they become so like acutely painful in our experiences with the church. Um, that was part of like how I picked the topics that I covered in my book is like, what are the things that usually end up like breaking our hearts in our relationship with the church? Um, and let me write my way kind of through some of those things that become hot buttons um, I think press into those things you know there's not the mindset I would encourage people to have is that there's not a right or wrong place to start I'm not a systematic theologian so I don't think that you have to start in any particular place um, and to to just jump in and if you start reading a book and it doesn't make any sense you don't have to finish that book. You can pick up another one. <laughs> like, um, I think that a kind of playful way of holding things uh, is is helpful. And I don't think that that diminishes the seriousness of it. Um, you get like very Mr. Rogers about the seriousness of play, right? That's just like, no, like yeah. we can hold things in high regard and playfully at the same time, especially if it's new to us. Uh, that's the best way human brains know how to learn is if it's kind of a playful thing. Um, and so that would be my encouragement. And, and then I do kind of have like many, many lists, right. For then like, however people like would re- respond to that question, I'd be like, okay, then you need to read here, 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 and here. Like, um, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Um, that's how I started to was I asked one question and then it just kept going and going and going. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's a, a fun way to learn. It's yeah. kind of follow the arrows, mm-hmm. um, and learn new things. Yeah. And read, right, the footnotes. read the footnotes of the books <gasps> that you like. Like if you read something yeah. and you're like, oh, I loved this. This connected with me. Like go read all their footnotes or endnotes and pick up all the books that they read. And even if you feel like I'm yeah. not smart enough to read this, try because you never know what you're going to find. Exactly. Yep. All right, Megan, thank you so much for being here. I honestly cannot wait to re-listen to this one just because I feel like we packed so much into um, 35 minutes. <laughs> um, but I, I 
so appreciate you and your work. So before we go, will you tell everybody where they can find you, your podcast, your book, all that good stuff? For sure. So I am on Twitter and Instagram at mwestra, M-K-E. Um, I am, I don't even know what I post on those things. I just, I post whatever comes to mind. Uh, like I post <laughs> my life. There is no strategy. Um, and then um, my website is meganwestra.com. People can find links to both my podcast and my book on my website. Um, and they should order it like through a bookshop or through a local bookstore. Um, yes. Is super great. Yeah. so much for joining me today on this episode of the making room on the pew podcast as always you can find me on social media at bailey joe welch and online at my website bailey joe and yes i will link that in the show notes because i know pomerants can get a little tricky to spell if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe so you are notified every time a new episode comes out And if you wouldn't mind taking just a few seconds to rate and review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. Doing those few easy things allows us to get the podcast in front of more people so we can all continue to make room on the pew. Until next time, this has been Making Room on the Pew.